On October 20, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Edward Foley, the Charles W. Ebersold and Florence Whitcomb Ebersold Chair in Law and Director of Election Law at the Ohio State University College of Law. Professor Foley's book is titled Ballot Battles, The History of Disputed Elections in the United States. This talk was moderated by Alex Kazar, the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Thank you uh, so much. I'm so thrilled to be here because um, this book would not exist were it not for Alex because he is the intellectual mentor of this project in his uh, Right to Vote book. Um, that's the model that I had in mind when I took on my project in an attempt to address the topic of disputed elections that he paved the way for in terms of the, the right to suffrage itself. So I knew Alex's work from relying upon it so much in my own scholarship uh, and then have had the great fortune over the last maybe decade now to, to become a friend and I'm really privileged and honored uh, to have that friendship uh, and mentorship on your part. So. Um, this really means something personal and special for me to be here. So thanks, thanks to all of you to, to allow me to share it with, with you. Um, so this book, you know, I'm not a trained historian. And I was really entered this project with trepidation in part because it didn't start out as a history project. Um, it started out as the goal uh, to do a book on, that a law professor would do, like what are the best rules for recounts? What are best practices with respect to the adjudication of disputed elections and, and come up with that, that approach? But I, as I undertook that project um, back in, starting in 2007, I felt I really couldn't do it without a historical orientation. And so you'll hopefully see why. Just as a kind of an overarching concept that maybe we can talk about or makes more sense. Again, I, the book started out, it was going to be a book about rules. I think it's now mostly a book about institutions or the, sort of the, the, the kind of the lack of a certain kind of institution in our history and, and for the reasons why we have that institutional deficiency and what we might do to, to improve it. Because again, I am the lawyer who wants to improve things for the future. Um, but there is this third component and the degree to which you know, the personal character or virtue of individual office holders within the system that we have um, matters because I think the ultimate historical lesson here is we, we don't have perfect rules and probably never will. We don't have perfect institutions and may not ever get there. And as Madison told us, men are not angels and we don't have perfect human beings. And so I think the historical story here is, is there such a word, can you apply the word dialectical when you have three different things or is it trilectical? I don't, I don't know, but there is a kind of interactive relationship between these three points of the triangle over time. And, and, I, and so as we keep the overall narrative in mind, keep those you know, three are, are overarching points to the, to the triangle. All right, so as Alex said, here we are this year <laughs> with this, uh, <laughs> this is our election. And when, um, you know, the, the book has been, again, I started in 2007, so it's a long time in the, in, in the process, but when I um, it, got, it came out in print in, in, in January, and, and I was out at Stanford actually on a sabbatical and had the opportunity to, to talk about the book then. And so this was right before the Iowa caucuses. And, 
And um, it was also before Justice Scalia um, passed away. And so the kind of image that I had in mind about what might be the current relevance this year of this historical topic would be the idea that maybe we would get a, dis a ballot counting dispute like Bush versus Gore, maybe in Ohio, maybe Florida again or whatever, but that the twist this year might be that even if the Supreme Court took the case again and had another 5-4 decision, Trump might say, hey, I don't have to follow the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's just a court. I'm taking my dispute all the way to Congress. And then what if the Senate was controlled by the Democrats wanting to favor Hillary and the House was controlled by Republicans wanting to favor Trump and we had this um, gridlock of our two chambers of our national legislature over who should who should win, that would make the dispute look like 1876 because the structural feature of that dispute was that the um, U.S. Senate was in Republican hands uh, wanting Hayes to win, the Dem um, Democrats controlled the House wanting Tilden to win, uh, and that's a key structural deficiency. So, um, you know, and, and, and that deficiency still exists. So we could, in 2020, have that kind of dispute, or 2024, it's kind of a, an Achilles heel that lurks within our, within our system. What is so amazingly relevant over the last 24 hours mm -hmm. is um, the relationship of Congress to the settlement of, of presidential elections now is very much in the news, not because we're, I don't think, you know, if the polls are any reality, we're not gonna get the knife's edge ballot counting dispute like we had in Florida in 2000. Instead, we have a candidate who has questioned whether he's going to accept the results. And if so, then the role of Congress and the two chambers and how they stand up and the role that they play under the 12th Amendment, um, you know, potentially has a constitutional significance. Um, so here is the 12th Amendment. Uh, this is the key language. The President of the Senate that's the Vice President of the United States, so that's Joe Biden on January 6th, shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, all open all the certificates, those are the Electoral College votes sent from the 50 states, and the vote shall then be counted. So the first thing you notice about the italicized language is it's in that passive voice that your sixth grade English teacher told you never to use because <laughs> it doesn't assign responsibility. And that is indeed the constitutional flaw here. Um, who actually counts the votes? It doesn't say. It sort of, sort of assumed that there never would be an issue about it. Well, there sure was in 18, 1876. And the pro again, the problem is if the Senate wants to count the votes one way, and the House wants to uh, count them another way. Um, and we could talk a lot about the details of that, but just to make the long story short, is that um, the, in my judgment, the, that dispute got resolved in a way that the 19th century historians understood. And Eric Foner touches upon in his book on Reconstruction. But for the most part, um, has been eclipsed because most of the focus has been on the so-called electoral commission that was created that split eight to seven in a very ugly way. And again, we can talk about that. But that was only part of the story. Um, does anybody recognize who this person is? Don't be embarrassed if you don't. Um, I certainly didn't, had never heard this name before I started this project. Um, but I'd like to um, suggest to you that this person is the most significant hero in American history that is entirely unknown. 
He's, his name is Samuel Randall, and he was Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives for this dispute. And the reason why he was heroic, in my judgment, is because, and this is so hard to realize, but Inauguration Day back then was March 4th. So, so we were supposed to get a new president on March 4th, 1877. On March 1st, we still didn't know who that president was going to be. That would be like not knowing on January 17th for us, right? You had generals, right? There was, the, there was a serious risk of simultaneous inaugurations, different ceremonies, different claimants to the power of commander-in-chief. And generals were willing, starting, the, the rumors were flying that certain generals were going to line up with Tilden, other generals were going to line up uh, with Hayes. I mean, uh, Ulysses Grant, the incumbent president, was thinking about um, declaring martial law that weekend in order to prevent a second inauguration. I mean, it was really, really dicey. And that was because they were still deadlocked. And the reason why they were deadlocked was because the commission had already finished its work involving disputes over Florida and South Carolina and Oregon and Louisiana, the four states that the commission entertained. But the Congress took this, this, the certificates from the states in alphabetical order, starting with Alabama, working through the alphabet, starting February 1st, needing to finish before Inauguration Day. And um, on, on March 1st, uh, there suddenly became a new unexpected dispute over Vermont at the end of the alphabet. And it threatened to derail the whole process because the House wanted to take the position that if, if there was no resolution to the count on Inauguration Day, that then that gave the House constitutional authority to act unilaterally under the other part of the 12th Amendment, which in the absence of an Electoral College majority winner, as had occurred in 1800 and 1824, the authority devolves to the House of Representatives to pick the president. So they thought, hey, we can pick our guy Tilden uh, if, if, we, we, if we remain in deadlock. And the hardliners um, wanted to do that. The Senate, on the other hand, would say, no, 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 under that ambiguous 12th Amendment, we think the president of the Senate, that happened to be a Republican, gets to unilaterally resolve a deadlock so that we have a, a proper inauguration. So there was constitutional loggerheads, a genuine constitutional crisis. And so what Randall did was he stepped up and said, well, I'm not going to take the country over the cliff, even though the, the majority of my party, if he applied the Hastert rule, you know, the so-called Hastert rule, the majority, right? If he had applied the Hastert rule, we would have gone over the cliff. But he actually, it was the most amazing session in, in the House of Representatives, he had to call out the sergeant-in-arms against his own membership. Because, and, and the Times, of, the New York Times, the Times of London reported that they had to clear the galleries, that they had to say women had to leave the galleries because the, the members had pistols in their pockets and they were ready to, to bring the pistols out. I mean, it got that dicey. But he's held firm and he said even, he, he said, he's putting country before party and he insisted on, on, and on reaching a resolution that led to, to the opposing side winning and Hayes getting to be inaugurated. Um, but, but we came that, that close. So the question that I want us to think about is how did we get into that kind of a messy situation? What, what would have caused that precipitous a crisis? And to answer that question, I think we actually have to go all the way back to the time of the founding. Um, and realize that the founders, for all their virtue and um, 
you know, the, 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 the legacy that they bequeathed to us that has many good elements has some deficiencies. They weren't perfect. They weren't absolutely clairvoyant. And they themselves realized that very quickly. How do we know that? It was because of a governor's election, New York race for governor in 1792. It was between John Jay. Political parties were already starting to form. You had the Federalist Party forming around Alexander Hamilton, and had a, it had its one banking policy. You know, they had a different view of the banking system and a different view of foreign affairs from the so-called Jeffersonians. Um, and the incumbent governor of New York, George Clinton, was a Jeffersonian. Uh, and John Jay was actually willing to step down from being the first Chief Justice of the United States to run for governor of New York, which sort of shows the relative importance of those two jobs <laughs> at the time. He'd rather be governor of New York. Um, and there was a dispute over ballots, from actually from Cooperstown, New York. The Baseball Hall of Fame didn't exist there, but that's where the, the fight was located. Um, and if those disputed ballots had counted, Jay would win, and if they were disqualified, Clinton would win, and we could get into the details if you want. But basically, the, the each side had their views about whether to count the ballots or not. But the problem was that the institution that had authority under the New York Constitution and New York laws was a so-called canvassing committee set up by the legislature of the state that had 12 members. And the way it worked out was that um, because of the formation of the political parties, it ended up having nine Jeffersonians because Clinton was the incumbent, and they got nine Jeffersonians on the, uh, and only three Federalists. So it was a lopsided body, and it ruled on party lines to invalidate the ballots. And the Federalists were livid. They thought that the, it was, this was a rig, you know, to use that term rigged election, it was rigged because the, the deck was stacked against them by this um, partisan tribunal. Uh, and one prominent, uh, and, and later even more prominent uh, lawyer at the time, a guy named James Kent, who's sometimes called America's Blackstones for the commentaries that he wrote on the common law of the United States that echoed the Blackstone way of thinking about the law, said, he, you know, the, the problem here is the lack of an adequate institution, a structural um, defect. These canvassers form a court of the highest importance, a court to decide on the validity of the elections without appeal, because the law said it was it had final authoritative um, you know, jurisdiction. Um, and then he has this odd phraseology. He says, they ought to have been at least equally biased between the two sides, the, the Jeffersonians and the Federalists. A very odd turn of phrase to our modern ears, but the, he's striving for this idea of even-handed impartiality or nonpartisanship or neutrality. And in, in the terminology, he was equally biased. But the problem was, was that it was lopsided. And, and this had there was real civil unrest. Um, shots were Thank God lives were not lost. But shots were fired. Some people were injured. There was rioting. Um, remember, this generation, these were the founders, they knew how to be revolutionaries. And so there was a question about whether or not the Federalists were going to kind of take matters into their own hand, even though they didn't have a legal remedy, but to kind of, because they thought it had been stolen. And, and um, interestingly enough, again, the founders divided on how to think about this. And, um, 
it, this, this New York election was a New York race, but everybody was following it. All the, the, the Virginia founders like Jefferson and Madison and Monroe are writing about it, thinking about how do we deal with this. And Madison had a much more legalistic approach, as he did to some other disputes in Congress at the time. He really wanted to know who won, because whoever won the most votes really ought to, ought to win, and our legal system ought to be able to find a right answer and install that person. Hamilton, the pragmatist, had a much more, um, uh, much less legalistic, much more ca uh, pragmatic approach to us. And he said, look, and he told John Jay, look, just concede defeat even though we think you really won. Again, he, Hamilton's a Federalist, Jay's his ally. He's almost like operating as a campaign manager. And he said, look, just concede defeat and run again next time and win by a bigger margin. Because let's not, you know, take this too far in terms of civil unrest. And Jay was persuaded, and, um, and that's what happened. And as we think about Trump and we think about where we are today, think about the importance of Hamilton's advice to Jay, and, and because re that really was the first major election where a candidate issued a concession, even though they, he thought he really won and his supporters thought he really won. And so John Jay stood up. And again, 19th century historians, thinking about the relationship of that episode and the later Hayes-Tilden episode really thought that that set the precedent for this concession for the sake of the future um, and, that, and, and that the way in which to judge the, the, the health of the system was not a single election but a series of elections over time. If, if elections are routinely stolen and rigged year after year after year, time after time, um, then that's uh, not a Republican form of government, but, but a one-off, you know, um, something going awry, we can kind of handle that. Madison, on the other hand, wanted to get everyone <laughs> correctly decided for the sake of the fairness of the system. So decide for yourself which vision of, of our system is better. But the point is the founders didn't resolve that. There was tension within the founding about how to think about, about this issue. Well, unfortunately, not all of the episodes in the 19th century um, was resolved in the way that the New York one was by kind of closure and, and civil peace without things kind of getting out of control. Um, and again, we're, we can go into details if you want to. But so, for example, Pennsylvania in 1838 had something called the Buckshot War because it got that ugly. The Brooks-Baxter War in Arkansas in 1872. The Colfax Massacre in Louisiana also in 18. 72. The state of Maine had its own little mini civil war in 1879, where militias are descending on the state capital to fight. And only because you have Joshua Chamberlain, a hero of Gettysburg, say, we cannot go to um, bloodshed over this. We, we were able to kind of avoid that in, in Maine. So there was a series of very, very ugly disputes. The ugliest one was at the end of the 19th century um, in Kentucky, again, a race for governor. 1899. This is from uh, Harper's um, Magazine, a prominent publication of the, of the era. Um, and I don't know if you can see what's going on, but, but, but this is one of the two candidates for governor who has been shot. And he's actually assassinated. He dies a few days later. He sh this is the state house. And the, and the legislature at the time is debating about which candidate won and how to count the ballots. So, so in the midst of the dispute over the ballots, one side shoots the other, the, the candidate, because of, they think this party has committed fraud 
Well, assassination is not the property remedy, <laughs> even if there is some ballot box stuffing, as there probably, probably was. Even worse, you see these people here, they're looking up at the windows where the bullets were fired from. Those were the offices of the Secretary of State of Kentucky. So you think we have issues about partisan secretaries of state, like in Florida in 2000. It may be bad, but at least we're not getting bullets fired from the Secretary of State's office, um, as happened. Uh, I really, you know, the low point. You know, my when I when I've you know I've taught this as a seminar to my students, and they always think that this episode was the low point of, of American history on this on this topic. Um, but there was another interesting aspect to this particular episode because it, the, the, a version of the dispute did make it into court and went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Taylor versus Beckham. This is Justice John Marshall Harlan, um, the elder, uh, who was on the court at the time. Um, and he is sometimes known as the great dissenter of that era, in particular because of his ringing dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, right? That was the awful separate but equal decision, and it was an eight-to-one decision. And he said, no, 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 no. This is racism. We can't tolerate it. Um, well, he was also the lone dissenter in this particular case. Another eight-one decision. The eight said federal courts have no jurisdiction. They invoked what lawyers call the political question doctrine, which prevailed at the time, which meant hands off. This belongs to state government, even though there had been the 14th Amendment that has the due process clause, the equal protection clause that is supposed to you know, protect rights. Their attitude was, we can't touch it as, a, as the federal judiciary because of the nature of the case. And he said, I don't think that's a proper understanding of our system of government after the 14th Amendment. And he said, the overturning of the public will as expressed at the ballot box is a crime against free government. I cannot believe that the judiciary is helpless in the presence of such a crime. The person elected as well as the people who elect him have rights that the courts may protect. But that was the dissenting view at the, t at the time. And the, the majority position in Taylor has consequences throughout the, the 20th century. Um, how, how do we know that? Well. Um, one of the most significant cases of the 20th century is the 1940 election for the U.S. Senate in which Lyndon Johnson was a candidate, <laughs> and he eventually wins. And, and that's, you know, the, if you've read the Robert Caro biography, The Means of Ascent, it's discussed in there. There's also the Robert Dalek biography that, that, that covers the same terrain. Um, and that involved the infamous ballot box 13 from South Texas. And what what... I think we can say without dispute, despite other details in the case, is that um, the, the certified margin of victory in the election was 87 votes. 200 fake ballots were added, or 200 fake votes were added to ballot box 13. And there was testimony in the, judicial, in the federal judicial system to that effect. And everybody agrees with that. There's debates about whether there was fraud on the other side. That was never proven in court. So you, you, we could have an interesting conversation about that. But it's, I think it's undeniable that the margin of victory, 87 votes, more than the margin, 200 um, fraudulent votes added to the tally and, um, in Johnson's favor, enough to make, uh, to make the difference. Um, uh, and that's why sometimes 
Johnson, so-called landslide Lyndon, he got that nickname from that election, whether his career was tainted by this kind of alleged fraud. Now, for our purposes, the significance of it is his opponent, Coke Stevenson, a former governor of Texas, um, went to federal court because he didn't think he could get a fair hearing in state court. Um, I don't know whether that was right or wrong, but he sued in federal court. Um, and the federal court was in the process of looking at, the, you know, try, at what the evidence was, getting the testimony, when Johnson went to the U.S. Supreme Court and got an emergency decree from um, Justice um, Hugo Black to stop the federal court proceedings. No jurisdiction. Why? The precedent of that Taylor versus Beckham case. Federal courts have no role to play in ballot counting disputes. So Johnson wins the court case and then goes on to the Senate. Similar thing about 1960. And whatever else you think about Nixon and Watergate and so forth, and whatever you think about the facts of the votes, the allegations involving Mayor Daley in Chicago and, and so forth, um, on election night, and this is relevant again for what the conversation is that we're having this week, is um, on election night, there was at least questions about the returns from both Illinois and Texas. And Nixon had to make a decision about whether or not, like Gore later on, to seek a recount in those two states. He needed to overturn the apparent Kennedy victory in both those states in order to prevail. One was not enough. So he had to, Nixon had to turn the tables both in Texas and Illinois. Johnson was on the ticket as the vice presidential candidate, and the Democrats controlled Texas was a one-party state at the time. And Texas's electoral mach machinery was very substandard for American democracy mid-20th century. Um, and Nixon looked at the landscape and said, there's no point trying to fight this because he couldn't possibly get a fair recount in, um, in, in Texas courts, state courts, in, in, in 1960, so he couldn't do that. And he couldn't go to federal court because of that same Taylor versus Beckham uh, precedent. Um, and, and so that was the jurisprudential consequences of that eight to one decision. Now, interestingly, after 1960, we get the so-called reapportionment revolution in the Warren Court and the one person, one doctrine, one person, one vote doctrine involving redistricting cases, right, reapportionment, um, uh, Reynolds versus Sims, Baker versus Carr, if you know that, jurisprudence. That's the Warren Court saying that, that the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment does have a role to play in regulating the electoral process. Um, in a way, overruling the premises of that Taylor case, but not applying it to the, the topic of ballot counting, applying it to redistricting. But that is a revolution in jurisprudence that comes to fruition in Bush versus Gore in 2000. And this may be a little bit provocative to put it this way, but the, and, and on this point, the Bush versus Gore decision is actually seven to two, right? The, the most controversial aspect of Bush versus Gore is the 5-4 decision to stop the recount. And we can talk about that, but seven of the nine justices, including Breyer and Souter, so-called liberals on the court, joined the other five to say there was an equal protection issue here. Um, and that's invoking this equal protection jurisprudence of the Warren Court that overrules that eight-to-one Taylor decision that vindicates the Harlan position 
that the 14th Amendment has a role to play. So just like Brown versus Board of Education belatedly vindicated Harlan's dissent in Plessy, you can make the claim that the seven to two part of Bush versus Gore and the assertion of federal jurisdiction vindicates the Harlan position that we can't leave this up just to the states and state institutions. Um, there's a federal role. Now, of course, we talk a lot about Bush versus Gore. Gore, the thing I want to stress about it, and, and I do want to stop in a minute or two, is, you know, the, again, this goes back to the point that, um, that Kent made about 1792. How good are our institutions? Because when Republicans think about Florida in 2000, they look at the Florida Supreme Court, they see it had nine Democrats on it, and they think it was a rigged institution in the way that that canvassing board in 1792 was rigged against Jay and the Federalists. You can't get a fair claim there. You have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court takes the case. What do Democrats think? They think the five judges who stopped the recount are basically Republicans underneath their robes, right? <laughs> this is a prize, Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist from Ann Talnais, I think is how you pronounce it. She works for the Washington Post now. And basically, you know, so, so again, do we have an institution that's sufficiently equally biased, to use Kent's odd language, or sufficiently nonpartisan or even-handed to handle these high-stakes, intense claims? Now, one piece of good news actually comes out of the state of Minnesota. In 1962, they had one of these gubernatorial disputes. Um, and the way they resolved it was that the chief justice got the lawyers for the two sides in his chambers, and he said, you guys pick the three-judge panel. I have the power to appoint the three judges who are going to adjudicate this dispute, but I'm going to insist that you tell me who those three judges are. They picked one Democrat, one Republican, and the third judge had been appointed to the trial court by one party and appointed to the appellate court by the other. And so this was seen as an inherently even-handed tribunal that had a, the capacity to break a tie because it was a three-member body. It, it actually ruled against the incumbent, and the incumbent left office because it was a fair process. Minnesota essentially repeated the same thing for the U.S. Senate election from 2008. This was when Al Franken prevailed against Norm Coleman, if you remember that. Al Franken, the comedian who's now a distinguished U.S. Senator. Um, but that was a very close uh, ballot counting dispute. Same Minnesota rules, and they did essentially the same thing. Jesse Ventura had been the independent governor of um, Minnesota, so they created what was known as the tripartisan panel one Democrat, one Republican, and one Jesse Ventura appointee. So, again, an evenly balanced tribunal. And my judgment, based on the, the history of this, is that's about the best that we can do. And, and we actually um, kind of modeled had a, an experiment involving Judge Wald under the auspices of something called the American Law Institute, where we had Judge Wald on a panel, who was from a Democratic background. We had the chief justice, uh, former chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court from a Republican background, and we said, you pick the third judge. And they picked a guy named David Levy, who was the dean of the Duke Law School, who had been a federal judge, son of Attorney General Edward Levy. And we had a kind of mock trial where we had Walter Dellinger argue on the Democratic side and another distinguished attorney. Anyway, so, so the idea here is that a, a properly structured three-judge panel 
is about the best institution we can do, but we've never put that into place as a matter of federal law or constitutional law, and, and, and we don't have it around the country. Minnesota is somewhat exceptional. So the final thought I want to leave with you on this is to realize that, again, go back to that dialectical relationship. You know, this is our democracy that we have inherited from the founders, but we get to improve it because there is still room for improvement. And you don't have to believe me. Let's think about what James Madison himself said. You know, when we, when we think about James Madison, at least lawyers do, we tend to think about him only, that younger Madison, when he was in the Constitutional Convention. And, um, and not the older Madison, who had served as president, who had been in Congress, who had lived a long time. But when he reflected back towards the end of his life, he said, look, that they had blown it. They made some mistakes. It wasn't their finest hour. And he wrote a letter in which he's, Alex knows this from, from his work. Um, he said, look, the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, when they got to the issue of the Electoral College and how to pick a president, was at the end of the summer. They were hot and tired, <laughs> fatigued, impatient. It was not their best endeavor. So don't take it for me, take it from Madison. And it wasn't just the aspects of the Electoral College that Alex appropriately is working on. It was the dispute resolution elements of it. Because in another letter he wrote at the same time, Madison said, he, but by the 1820s, he realized we do have this deficiency. Picking, you know, picking a president's a big deal when you've got partisan conflict. We ought to leave as little room as possible for abortive or controversial results. One way to do that is as through the rules, the ballot county rules, to make them as good as possible. But we aren't going to be completely clairvoyant from that. It might not be hanging chads, but the next time it might be provisional ballots or absentee ballots or, or, or whatnot. And that's why it's up to us to create the institutions that are robust enough to handle these disputes if the rules aren't perfect. But if we don't have those institutions in place, then we're going to have to count on the virtues of the individuals like Samuel Randall, who happen to inhabit whatever institutions we have at the time. Thank you. Uh, the, the floor is open for questions. And uh, do you want to call on people? Should I call on people? The floor is wide open. This is a naive question, but oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to say this. Uh, my uh, understanding is that the court, particularly the highest court in the land, regardless of who appointed them, is supposed to be guided by law, which is not political. It's above politics. And the whole idea of a court system as opposed to the executive branch and the whatever, the legislative branch, is that it's guided by virtues and precedents that are different. And what you seem to be saying is not so, that we really can't rely on our court system to look at the facts of the matter, to be guided by legal precedent, that they're going to vote politics. So if it's a, particularly if it's a question of, you know, choosing a candidate, we are particularly vulnerable to the fact that the courts, our, our court system, is essentially merely a reflection of our political divisions. 
And I find that upset. I mean, I just, of course it's true, but I mean, you're a lawyer. I mean, the fact that that's the whole premise of a solution, that we'd have to figure out, well, that guy was appointed by a Republican, that guy was, I mean, it seems like when everyone, you know, says to a presidential candidate, they say, well, I'm not going to be guided by my political background. I'm going to pick someone who's the best qualified. To, so I just wondered about your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so I like to think of this on a spectrum of the, um, the notion of institutional strength and institutional weakness. Um, courts are better than legislatures. One clear lesson is this, is, is if you let the legislature, and particularly state legislatures, have the authority over which candidate is declared the winner, like in Kentucky in 1899, you risk the rawest of raw partisan greed in those situations that increases the risk of civil violence and, 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 and calamity. So, bad idea. <laughs> so, and, and as we move the, and, and the overarching trend, there are exceptions, but the overarching trend as we move from the, 20th, the 19th century through the 20th is to try to take these disputes out of the hands of the legislatures and put them in the hands of the courts. Again, first state courts because Taylor versus Beckham said not federal court. And, and even though state judges are often elected instead of appointed and therefore can be partisan, um, they tended to be better on balance than the state legislatures. Less partisan, more rule oriented, more fairer on the whole. But nonetheless, there are lots of examples, unfortunately, where they start to look partisan. Like, so like the Rhode Island Supreme Court in 1956, which, you know, it's a court, it's in the middle of 20th century, it's rank partisanship. I mean, the, the rules look pretty clear that one candidate should win. And so there it was an example where they've done a decent job writing the rules to how to handle some, uh, what you do with absentee ballots um, in a particular circumstance. So, you know, if I was a, a law school professor grading exams, there would be only one right answer to that legal question. But the Rhode Island Supreme Court answered it the opposite way. Why? Because they wanted, they were appointed by one party and they wanted the, you know, so, so I don't like it, but that's the reality of the situation. So then on the same spectrum, so federal judges on the whole tend to be less partisan than state judges. So. So actually, one, I think one potential good news story for Bush versus Gore for the 21st century is that insofar as these disputes are now going to move to, to federal court instead of state court, as they have started to do in the 16 years since 2000, we're, again, we're not going to get perfect justice, but we're likely on balance to get better justice, less partisan justice as a result of that move. Um, but the reason why election, I mean, this, and we have div politics dividing judges over lots of issues like abortion, death penalty, and so forth. But, but partisanship is on the sleeve in an election case. I mean, you know it's D versus R from the get-go in a way that, that just isn't true about a death penalty, for example. And, um, and so that's why this ideas that maybe this is a, like we have specialized courts for bankruptcy cases because they're thought to be unique for certain reasons. We have specialized courts for tax cases. We have the FISA court for intelligence gathering cases. Maybe we need a specialized election 
court. Other countries have specialized election institutions that are designed to be nonpartisan. We could try to do, to do that. Motion? Yeah. Uh, I have a, a couple of questions. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, the first question is just following on Marty's comment here about the Supreme Court. It, from a constitutional standpoint, historically speaking, isn't it – and Supreme Court has always been a, a thoroughly political body inherently because they're appointed by – appointed by – nominated by the by president. I mean, even in the debate last night, it was quite clear that they're making a political case for why they should be elected on the basis of what kind of justice uh, they would appoint. So uh, wasn't, isn't there a – my first question is just, again, a naive question, the fundamental flaw in the constitutional design of actually the Supreme Court always playing uh, a deep role in our political life uh, based on the fact that they're appointed in the first place by a president who wants the Supreme Court to further – um, his or her agenda, uh, and Bush v. Gore for me is a, an example of, as you said, pure partisanship. I mean, it wasn't even, it was, you know, they didn't even bother to, to hide that. Um, the second question is about <coughs> Trump, actually. I, I guess, yeah, I see the, 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 the worry and nervousness about, you know, his statements about not con conceding the election, but where, I guess my question is, where is the potential constitutional crisis there? He's not a, you know, he's not a sitting president. Uh, the I, I can't see how that would become an issue involving Congress, um, you know, unless it's a really close election and we which kid, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't look that way. Um, so I'm just, you know, is this just something? Well, it's relevant because he's spinning stories from Breitbart, or is it relevant because we act, you can actually see a potential? I'd just like to hear you map out. In, you know, in a realistic way, how this Trump uh, ridiculousness could turn into an actual constitutional crisis along the lines of what you've, what you've described. And then very quickly, my third, third and last question is actually about uh, Bush v. Gore, which has always troubled me like many people. Uh, it's actually more about Al Gore. So I, I'm implicitly, in you, you, you seem to be saying sort of bipartisanship is a solution to all these problems and the Nixon concession and other concessions is sort of a healthy way of moving forward in a democracy. Uh, I've always been troubled by the Gore concession uh, because in many ways it seemed to uh, legitimize what appeared to be an egregious case of stealing an election. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it, and I know this is a simplistic way of looking at it, but it was almost, okay, I'm, as a potential president, someone who was actually elected, you know, winning the popular vote and, and possibly also have won the Electoral College, letting the Supreme Court, uh, a partisan Supreme Court, take precedence in who actually gets to be president. I thought that Gore was setting a dangerous precedent there uh, in that concession and then his behavior afterwards in the Senate when he kind of, uh, kind of shut, down, shut down discussion about it. So those are those are my questions. Yeah, those are all great. So and if I miss it as I go through, please remind me to follow up. Um, so on the first one about ju justices and ju you know, the, the, the is, I, I'm of the I teach constitutional law as well as election law. I don't write as much in that area anymore. But but I I think we are increasingly you know right now is the first time in a long time where the ideological division in the court maps precisely onto the partisan division, right? So there's the five conservatives are all Republicans, the 
four and a half, four now, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but, but, um, but, but I, so I, I, I've often wondered whether or not the one of the mistakes that the founders made was what they used the two-thirds um, requirement for the Senate for. They said you need two-thirds of the Senate to ratify a treaty, but only a majority of the Senate to ratify, in essence, a Supreme Court appointment. And I wonder whether that would have been better if they had flipped that or at least made the two-thirds requirement for, for appointing justices. Now, the, the, the effect of that would have been inevitable moderation from both sides. Now, you, you might not like that. You might think the center is just milk toast and, you know, but, but, but it would have, without having to rely on the filibuster rule or think about that, it would have, it would have, it, that would have been a constitutional signal that you had to have widespread consensus on the identity of the Supreme Court justice any time there was a new appointment. So I think that that would have had a long-term stabilizing effect, less oscillating back and forth. Are we going to overrule Roe versus Wade if Trump wins? Are we going to overrule Citizens United if Clinton wins kind of thing? Um, so that, but that's a really important larger dis dis discussion. Um, so now, would we have a constitutional crisis because of the kinds of things Trump said last night at the debate, if, if I understood it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, in my own view, well, I, th I think the, the really troubling things that I think Trump says is this sort of claim that the electoral system is inherently rigged you know, from the get-go, regardless of kind of what the facts on the ground are. I mean, I think that is outrageously irresponsible and, and you know, divorced from reality. Um, now, does that cause a constitutional crisis? I, you know, I think our institutions are more robust than that. And as you said correctly, it matters whether or not we're in a scenario where, like 1876 or 2000, there is a genuine fight over enough ballots that could make the difference one way or the other. Um, I guess the way in which I think about any of Trump's statements, the most egregious kind or what he said at the debate last night, um, is I, I think our system has the capacity of isolating him and making him essentially irrelevant and so kind of an embarrassment and marginalized insofar as if I mean, other people have to stand up, but if he's out there protesting, and, and again, I recognize he's waffled today or, or taking that back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Any, anyways, but let's just hypothesize that he, you know, he cannot bring, bring himself to utter the phrase, I lost. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, he's, he's, he's got such a long tradition as a gracious loser. Yeah, you're right, exactly. Um, but if, if, Again, because the Senate and the House have this authority under the 12th Amendment, despite the passive voice, we know there has to be this joint session of Congress, this open you know, public proceeding where the entire Senate and the entire House visibly examine the ballots from the states and pronounce a winner. And that is the official solemnizing occasion. Normally, it's just ceremonial. Um, but if in anticipation of that event, Paul Ryan as speaker saying, I recognize that Clinton has won. Um, and Mitch McConnell, whether he's majority leader or minority leader, says, I, in my leadership capacity within the Senate, recognize that Hillary Clinton has won fair and square. To me, that 
as a matter of constitutional structure, that's, that is the authoritative voice for closure and the, and the settlement in, this, in a democracy that we move from one administration to the other. And um, yes, it would be much better if Trump said the same thing, but it's not a constitutional necessity. And it shouldn't be a constitutional crisis if he, you know, if he, if he can't sort of step up and do the right thing. So I, I think we're, you know, in maybe in essence in agreement on that. Now, as for Bush versus Gore and whether Gore conceded prematurely in effect after the Supreme Court decision, you know, Alex and I, we were talking about this. Um, you can make that argument. Ron Klain, his biggest advisor at the time, was pushing for him to go back to the Florida Supreme Court uh, because it had been, this was an issue of state law, not federal law, whether the recount was supposed to go forward or not. Uh, Gore said no, obviously. But, but um, if, you, if you try to play out what the end game would have looked like had Gore said, look, the U.S. Supreme Court had no business stopping the recount completely. Maybe they could remand it, but they couldn't shut it down. So I'm going back to the Florida Supreme Court. Let's suppose the Florida Supreme Court had resumed the recount and that would have produced a Gore victory. A lot of big ifs then ha having to do with the undervote and the overvote and all of that, but let's just assume that's the way it plays, plays out. We know that the Florida legislature would have asserted authority under the so-called Article <coughs> II provision of the Constitution that gives the power to appoint electors to state legislatures themselves. You know, we only vote in presidential elections by virtue of the fact that the state legislatures let us choose the electors. The electors pick the president, as Alex is the authority on. Um, so that, that would have set up a scenario just like 1876, because you would have had competing claims reaching Congress, one based on the pedigree of the Florida Supreme Court saying Gore has won, the other based on the pedigree of the Florida legislature saying Bush had won. And then the crisis would have been if, at the time, the House of Representatives was under Republican control. That, so they would have said, hey, we're going to accept the Florida legislature certificate. <laughs> Gets even more bizarre. The U.S. Senate was 50-50 <laughs> with Al Gore with still the vice president up till January 20th. And therefore, on the date that they meet on January 6th, he had the constitutional capacity as to break the tie, so he could have broken it in his favor. Had he done so, we would have been back in Hayes-Tilden's scenario with the Senate asserting that Gore is the winner, the House asserting that um, Bush was the winner, with no adequate mechanism to resolve even that. If the vote, just a quick uh, clarification. This, is, this scenario is true even if the votes are counted and Gore emerges as the, as the winner. Correct. Okay, so even, so even had they counted everything and it shows him winning, you think that the, the Republican legislature would have actually said, no, he didn't win? Yeah, they in fact... So they, they announced they would do that. Yeah, they, and in fact, they had gone, they had started to hold the necessary... Yeah, but uh, I think it would, you know, who knows? We, never, we, we don't know, but I think my best judgment looking at it is, is you know, had those things fallen out that way. I, I actually don't think it would have happened. I mean, I think if you want to go to sleep at night, um, I'm not sleeping. Yeah. Um, Gore, the funny thing is, Gore would have actually lost going back to the Florida Supreme Court, and the reason is he never. It has to go with this over. The hanging chads were all undervotes, and that's all he ever complained about. Um, and the media consortium that looked at all the ballots afterwards 
said that under any standard of picking the hanging chads, from the lenient to the strictest, just looking at undervotes was not enough. But Gore would have won had overvotes been part of the recount. But that's not what he asked for as plaintiff, and it's not what the Florida Supreme Court had ordered when it ordered a statewide recount. It ordered, only ordered a statewide recount of the undervotes. Why would have Gore won an overvote? Because it was not Palm Beach County, I mean, as bad as Palm Beach County was, worse was Duval County up in Fort Lauderdale, where large numbers of African Americans were effectively disenfranchised by a different type of ballot confusion, where it said vote two pages, the, the names of all the candidates, instead of putting them on the same page the way the butterfly ballot did, they went to two pages and then they were told vote every page. So you voted for Gore on page one and you voted for Pat Buchanan on page two. And the machines call that an overvote. But many voters realized wrong and they said, I don't mean to vote for Pat Buchanan, I only mean to vote for Gore. So a manual inspection of those votes would have resurrected a lot of Gore votes, but never would have happened because he never asked for it, and that's not what the Florida Supreme Court ordered. So Bush would have won in the judicial system as it happens, right or wrong. Anyway. Other questions? Uh, two fairly short questions. Uh, one, how, how in general have, um, have courts handled cases where the, potentially the court believes that there was a great deal of misconduct, but also believes that it didn't matter for the outcome of the election. In other words, how important in these judicial proceedings is the question of would the person have won, uh, you know, would the person have won without, you know, whatever it was that's being disputed in the courts? Um, uh, and then the, the second question you mean is... Sort of a the statistical tie notion that we're sort of within the margin of error no matter what, so... No, no, yeah. the question being how important is it to the courts to... When, when disputes, when disputes are, are raised uh, over the count and it, it's clear pretty quickly that there won't be enough votes involved to, you know... Do, do the courts still attempt to render judgment on whatever, you know, led up to the, to the dispute even if it wouldn't matter for the outcome? Of the election, and yeah. then can the I take that just yeah. yeah, and then let you uh, just um, so the uh, the short answer to that is no. If we're in the post voting, in other words, after the polls have closed, and we have what are the technical term of art is called a judicial contest of the result. It's a prerequisite under the laws of all 50 states as it's developed that you have to prove that the error or problem. Um, was of sufficient magnitude to be outcome determinative. So you can't really, um, the court won't take the time to really entertain whether or not there's a, a problem unless you, you plead the case that way and have some arguable basis for saying that it's an outcome determinative error. Now, if we're talking about what are the right rules for provisional ballots or absentee ballots or so forth in advance of election day and we're litigating over what the rules should be, then, then that's not a factor because, because the courts want to get the rules right ahead of time and we don't know what the outcome will be. So, so the posture of the judicial proceeding really matters for that, for that point. Um, the second question was just about the, the institutional uh, approach to sort of having a, a better system. Um, do you think, I, this is, do you think that a, a specialized tribunal or a set of procedures that choose kind of a, not an ad hoc, but that, that determine how you know a, a tribunal would be convened. Um, 
you know, those are those are different approaches. Do you think one of those is is better than the other, or you know, more feasible under current U.S. law? Yeah. The, um, so I guess I do. I think there is a general consensus among election law scholars that the more that can be hammered out ahead of time, with as much pre precision and as possible, is is better, even if they're not perfect rules, because. Again, what, what candidates and litigators want to do is game the system once they know whether they're ahead or behind in the count and how much they have a difference they have to make up. When you're behind the proverbial veil of ignorance, I mean, we're never going to be Rawlsian with our perfect veils, but, but if you're before election day, you don't know whether you're going to be ahead or behind. And so if everybody can kind of agree what the ballot counting rules are in advance and you're kind of stuck with them once the veil is lifted, that's better. So on that approach, it would be really good to have a statute that says here is how we pick the tribunal and there's no other way to pick it and, and actually both have those rules and maybe have those people picked in advance um, so you, you, everything's in place in case a dispute arises. Minnesota, as good as it was, was ad hoc in the way that the, the picking of those judges or even the method wasn't settled in until the dispute existed. Now, that we, we knew under Minnesota law that Chief Justice had the authority, but he had, it was a he in both instances, had complete discretion to pick whatever three judges he wanted. So he could have picked three Republicans or three Democrats. It just so happened that um, he tried to be fair in both those instances. So, so does that answer that, that question? Ned, let, let me ask you a question which follows up from that, because um, We we don't have any kind of system of electoral tribunals or or we don't or even you know election agents. We, these are very weak institutions in this whole terrain, right? And you know one can listen to your to, to your story and and I've I've read the longer version, <laughs> um, and it's hard not to come away with the conclusion that it would be a very sensible thing for the United States to create you know. Basically, to have detailed rules about ballot counting, et cetera, et cetera, um, but to create a me mechanisms well in advance under the Rawlsian veil um, about procedures. For example, well, we're going to use a three-judge panel, you know, and, and here's the way that's going to be done, or to create, a, you know, a separate electoral institution, right? That would be pretty insulated and that would deal with that. Um, I think we would all agree that that seems like a sensible thing to do. So then my question, contemporary and historical, is why has it not happened? I mean, you and I have both, you at much greater length and depth than I, have both written about the fact that after the 1876 election, when, they, when Congress, and most, most people in this room don't know this bit of arcane American history, but when after that dispute election in 1876, Congress spent more than a decade trying to come up with a procedure and rule, and they produced something called the Electoral Count Act, which no one at the time or since has ever understood. Uh, um, and, uh, but so why is it so hard? Yeah, it is the key question, isn't it? The, my short kind of flip sarcastic answer, but I do think there's some truth, is, is in American politics, greed trumps fear. So, right, I mean, in other words, the, the partisan calculation in this regard is, you know, is, is are you, you know, it, 
if you if you can control the body, then you can impose your will on the result. That's the greed side, and you can use that technical term, screw the other side, right? <laughs> right. On the other hand, if they if the other guys control, then you're screwed or potentially screwed. That's the fear dynamic, and so you know if politics was sufficiently risk averse, you would think that fear would trump greed and there would be this bipartisan consensus to say, we'll each give up the opportunity to prevail for the sake of not being on the raw end of the stick. And yet, that is, except for the Minnesota and some other examples, that on the whole has not happened. Now, I do think, you know, one element of 1876 that we didn't have time for, and I you know, I mean, talk about it in the book, but underplayed here is the role that the electoral commission created. Because, you, you know, at an earlier stage of the crisis, when they knew that they were had problems, they anticipated going over the cliff, and they said, "Okay, let's not go over the cliff. We'll create this body." And they tried, in a way, to do this notion of even-handedness, but it was very poorly designed. Why? It had 15 members instead of three, so it had seven Ds, seven Rs. They were going to split. There was only going to be one lone tiebreaker, kind of dominated by this. And and then the person that they picked to be the neutral <laughs> refused to serve. And the way they set up the rules for how you got the neutral was it had to be a Supreme Court justice. Um, and there wasn't any other one that was sufficiently neutral, and so they had another R added. So it was an eight-seven, bi you know, structurally biased to begin with. So. Um, when they, in the decade afterwards, they kind of threw the baby out with the bat. In other words, they were, the Democrats were so hostile to that commission, they wouldn't entertain that notion anymore. Um, and, and so my, one of the lessons I take away with that is that they, they had the right basic idea, but it was really poorly executed. So that was an example of maybe fear overcoming greed for a moment, but very poorly mis, mishandled. The, the other factor in that, I think, um, is the episodic nature of this. So unlike, I mean, we, it's interesting to compare this issue with redistricting and whether or not we can get neutral bodies because it's the same fear-greed dynamic about controlling the redistricting process. Um, you know, interestingly enough, in this decade, there's been more movement, a little bit slow, but some movement in Arizona, California, my state of Ohio, to try to get these more evenly-handed neutral commissions. And that's because there's a recognition that every 10 years this is going to come up and one side's going to be screwed and the other side's going to be triumphant in a very arbitrary, kind of in ugly sort of way. And can't we, can't we get rid of that? And we've had make, so the same question sort of exists. Is we haven't been especially successful in avoiding that problem, but we're doing a little bit better. But at least that's a regular every 10 years. These, these you know, the, uh, you write a book about election disputes, they're the only thing you talk about. But there's a little bit of a selection bias, if you will, because the book is all about these <laughs> strange cases. And, but in the life of a single state, and the life of the nation over 200 years, it, they're a little bit like lightning. They're like, I mean, this is risk management. So these disputes, pick your metaphor. They're like hurricanes, they're like earthquakes. Um, and um, you know, the hundred-year flood, they don't happen very often, and so they always get pushed aside. There's always something more pressing on the legislative agenda. 
than worrying about a dispute. And that's another part of the story of why it took. It took Congress that long. We had 1876. This is that. 1888 was unbelievably close. We didn't get an answer for six days. New York was the swing state. Um, it, I won't go on and on. But 1884 was incredibly close. So they finally, in 1887, said we cannot go into another election without some statute. But they couldn't. They knew it was a disaster. But they thought, as a, as a statute, but they thought it was the, the best that they could do, and we've never done better since. So, uh, so we, so you're. What I'm hearing as a general view is that you think we would need more recurrent crises to create. To, no, I, I, I to, to create enough, you know, sort of energy and continuity for something to happen, because. Well, that's why the virtue, right? That's why there's this trilectical relationship, because. Um, if we, if we don't get the institutional fix and we haven't written the perfect ballot counting rules in advance and the dispute lands in the U.S. Supreme Court, we have to hope that the nine justices, whoever might be, might set aside partisanship and be as objective as humanly possible. What's our realistic expectation of that? It depends on the degree of personal virtue that they themselves as individuals can summon uh, in the occasion. Um, if we think that's not the best institution, but we ought to have a Minnesota-type body that we haven't created in advance, can some of the people um, rise to the occasion in the moment and say, well, we should have done this ahead of time, better late than never. Let's do a little bit like the Electoral Commission, but let's not make it 15 members. Let's do it better. That, that calls upon the individual virtue of the whoever is in the, has the capacity to set up that institution like the Chief Justice did. So that's why I think, you know, we're, we're, you know, that's why we have to improve, we have to constantly try to push for improvements on all three of these dimensions, rules, institutions, and virtues. Let me belabor this one step further and then I'll hand it back over. Do you know of any efforts um, in Congress or in individual states to try to create these kinds of rules and institutions, and then they were defeated. I mean, do we do we know about you know? We, I would have to guess there's some, you know, there's got to be somebody in Minnesota or someplace else who introduced a provision to create an electoral court or an electoral institution, and then you know, and it never get anywhere. Do we do we know about that? Do we? Yeah, a little bit in the Congress in particular. So there, and I'm embarrassed to say I forget his name, but there is a member of the House of Representatives who every year proposes legislation along these lines. And, and there's an organization in Washington called the Bipartisan Policy Center that, that does a lot of issues, budget policy, energy policy, set up by the former majority leaders on both sides of the aisle, so Tom Daschle and Trent Lott and those sorts of folks. And the guy who works on election issues there constantly tells me about the name of this member of Congress who tries to hold hearings in a particular committee and but and it goes goes no nowhere. So there is this one lone guy in Congress who every year pushes this and um, it just didn't We should give him the Samuel Randall Award. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, now the other thing, I mean it'll be interesting. So this thing called the American Law Institute, which um, did something called the Model Penal Code, which is very influential in criminal law, the Uniform Commercial Code for Business Law, and other things like that, has created an election law project over the last few years to address this topic. And it's in the middle of its work. I'm fortunate enough to be involved 
with that. And, and one part of it is to come up with a, we've already come up with a model set of deadlines and procedures for disputed presidential elections. It was officially promulgated as ALI policy last May. Um, it was sent around to all the state legislators. I'm not surprised. They didn't take it up this year. Whether they'll take it up in the future, well, it's an experiment. We'll have to see. The other part that's still to be worked on, we have a meeting in December, and I'm, I've got some work to do to get ready for that meeting, is to try to come up with the, the model rules for gubernatorial disputes in U.S. Senate, sort of a, a general set of ballot counting rules that you could then show to state legislatures and say, here's a good set of rules. So, so we've kind of got a natural experiment going on about over the next decade or so whether the ALI project will have any traction or not. You should let us know whether there are any Kennedy School students could be of help as you Oh, that'd be forward. awesome, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling you'd be interested. Tom, Gina? I mean, mine was more going to be about this current topic, so let's move on to something. Um, so one thing I was thinking about that was brought up when we were talking about the Bishop Gore situation um, was concerns for legitimacy, right? So, um, and then I think underlying a lot of our conversation is kind of, um, we're talking about counting the votes and getting the vote count right, but then the other part of it is like, which votes do we care about and, and how does that vote count lead to legitimacy, right? So in, with the legislator in Florida threatening to, um, I don't know if threatening is the right word, but saying that <laughs> it'll um, vote for Bush regardless of whether the vote said vote for Gore or not. So a lot of state constitutions have different ways of counting popular votes in order to decide who gets electoral college. Bush actually lost the popular vote in that election and won the um, but won the electoral college vote, depending on how you look at it. So how do we, like, we we're talking about the votes and the right count of those votes. How do we deal with the idea of electoral college versus popular vote and when, what is the right kind of, I guess, mix of maintaining legitimacy when relying on the electoral college and the system when it doesn't always acknowledge the popular vote? Yeah, that's really a great question, and, and there's multiple layers, I think, to it. The, the piece of it that involves the unique provisions of the Electoral College and the fact that the state legislatures have the power to yank the franchise away from us as citizens in a presidential election is, is one, you know, distinctive legitimacy issue, which I sort of defer to Alex on as, as, as the question of whether we should have an Electoral College in the first place and the state legislatures should have this power and how, how we as a country deal with that. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on that as a, as, a, as a, you know, burning question kind of at the heart of presidential elections. Um, I think there's a kind of even more transcendent legitimacy question that happens to surface in presidential elections but could in other elections, and that is there's an inevitable gap, and, and the book kind of tries to map this out and in the introduction and inclusion and kind of as a thread that gets woven throughout, between two concepts. One concept is fairness in the ballot casting process and sort of the, the voting itself versus fairness in the counting process. And those, aren't, don't, those don't necessarily line up. And so guaranteeing a fair count of the ballots as cast doesn't necessarily guarantee you that you had fairness in the casting of the ballots in the first place. 
And I think Florida shows that in multiple domains. You had the voter purges that were horrific, that disenfranchised legitimate voters who were not felons, but were stricken from the rolls. This was before we had provisional ballots. So if they went to the polls, they were completely out of luck based on worse than negligence because it was, it was deliberate indifference in a way, to use a technical legal term, because they kind of knew that the, that the purging standards were erroneous and would have these, this kind of error rate built into it. Um, but th those votes that never were cast could never be counted. And as a legal strategic matter, Gore didn't want to seek the remedy of voiding the election. Right? So one possibility would, was, was, was Florida so bad that you just void and nullify the result because it was just a failure of democracy and these results count for They're just not... That ties back to the electoral... What would have happened if the judiciary had voided the election? It would have handed it back to the Florida legislature to say, you picked the electors. So that wasn't in Gore's strategic interest because they would have picked pick Bush. Um, the butterfly ballot's another example. I mean, we know that they, the butterfly ballot was outcome determinative, but those votes were Buchanan votes. You can't, you know, there really isn't a way for the legal system to fix that. And we could say the same thing about Hayes-Tilden. I won't take the time to do it, but that gap between casting fairness and counting fairness is a structural inevitability in some of these situations. We have time for one more question. Do you want to squeeze in your question, Tom? Okay, that is maybe it's a good last one. Just um, looking forward, sort of with, I guess, some of the pressure that's being put on by the Trump campaign, talking about, you know, it being rigged. Do you foresee any improvements in the institutions? Do you, do you think it'll happen? Um, you know, I like to be optimistic and idealistic, so. Um, you know, so I'm, I have a split, I have a schizophrenic answer because you know, half of me undertakes this American Law Institute project in the hope that it does have some traction. Um, half, I mean, I don't know if backlash is the right word, but maybe, maybe if, if as a nation we are so horrified with some of the things that Trump has said and done and acted, that there's a kind of a positive backlash or effect in saying, okay, we can't do that again, so how do we set up some mechanisms to avoid it? Um, so part of me would like to be, and maybe try to be optimistic and try to capitalize that on if we can. You know, the legacy does give you pause and suggest, though, that there's an inertia here that, that if you had to bet, you'd, unfortunately, you'd, you'd be, the safer bet is to, well, I don't know. It's short-term, long-term, right? The, the, the best news of this book, and maybe this is a good point to end on, yeah. the best news of this book is if we take the full sweep from beginning of seven, you know, 1792 to the end is general forward momentum and progress. We are so much, notwithstanding the problems of Bush versus Gore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as a society, we are so much better in the 20th century than we were in the 19th. And maybe we have reason to hope that we can continue that long-term progress. That's, that, 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 I think, is largely due to cult changes in cultural norms over time, progressive era, civil rights era, that have their ways of seeping into other aspects of the legal system. And so, um, so long-term optimism, 
short-term realism slash semi-pessimism. And on that complicated <laughs> note, um, <laughs> let me invite everybody to stick around, and there's food and drink out there, and we did it talking uh, informally. And above all, Ned, let me thank you for, uh, for coming and for, for educating us about this very important subject that we don't want to think about. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you. I mean, I, you know, my pl I mean, thank you for letting me share, you know, the afternoon with you and have this conversation. I appreciate it. <laughs>